Good morning, Great Oaks. Hey, one thing I want to make sure we have correct uh, for the cross training. Kids have completed kindergarten, all right? Make sure they've completed kindergarten. One thing I want to highlight is this last week on Friday night, who joined us here on Friday night? Anybody join us on Friday night? If you don't know what we're talking about, the Moving Forward event, um, Jason and the rest of the executive team, the staff pitched our vision where we're wanting to go in the next seven years, dreamed a little bit. I'm not going to talk about that too much. If you want to see that, we'll be sending out a link with the video where you can watch all that was unpacked there. I do want to mention this. If you haven't seen our new church logo that we updated, that's been on most of the slides you've seen this morning. Shirts are going to be at Connection Corner outside, all right? We just refreshed it a little bit. Don't worry. The tree is still there. All right. Yeah. We love the tree. And don't worry. Green is still one of our colors. All right. So um, supposedly it's in. All right. So that's all of that. So there's business out of the way. Welcome to Great Oaks. If you are new and joining us, I want to let you know where we're at right now in a series. We're in a series called You Asked For It. This is a series based on questions that you submitted, and those questions, we probably didn't take them all, but the ones that were either repeated multiple times or the ones we really thought needed to be asked and answered, we've been taking those series, right, these sermons. The last two weeks, Jason's talked about LGBTQ+, and you can look at those sermons on our website, what, the last two weeks on that, about how we deal with love and conviction. This week, we started a new one, and maybe you're in here going, oh, all right, new topic, less awkward, less tension, yes. As you breathe that in, breathe it in. Yeah, that feeling needs to be gone pretty quick, okay? <laughs> I want to remind everyone, Jason and I and the teaching team did not pick these. You did. All right. So, Remember, during the sermon, if you want to ask a question or tell me how you think I'm doing, uh, feel free to scan the QR code and send that in, all right? So like I said, the tough stuff's not over. Here's the question that we're addressing today. How Christian is Christian nationalism? Yeah, that silence pretty much sums it up. Why is this even a question? We've seen the rise in nationalism, and we've seen the rise in Christian nationalism for the last several years. In fact, when you Google this, you'll see articles, I mean hundreds of them, written in just the last three years. So this question is very applicable to today, and we need to address it. So during this sermon today, you're going to hear scripture, but you're also going to hear a lot of civics too. Now, before I go completely into this message... I told Jason when we looked at all these, I said, all right, I got this one. Here's why I got this one, because I wanted it. I am a Midwestern grown-up boy from Indiana, next state over, all right? Go Boilers, uh-huh, yep, all right. Born on a farm, and I come from a, a proud family of military service. And I wanted this sermon today. And as we walk through, do me a favor, hear what I got to say, and then ask the questions afterwards, all right? So, as we, before we define what nationalism is or Christian nationalism is, let's talk about some famous quotes in history that we might feel good or not so good about. So let's go ahead and do some famous quotes, all right? If you know who they're from, don't spoil it. All right. Here we go. Today, Christians stand at the head of this country. I pledge that I will never tie myself to parties who want to destroy Christianity. We want to fill our culture again with the Christian spirit. 
We want to rid out all recent immoral developments in all literature, theater, press. In short, we want to take out all the poison of immorality which has entered into our whole life and culture as a result of the liberal excess during the past few years. End of quote one. Quote two. Christians, hasten to help your brothers in the east, for they are being attacked. Arm yourselves to rescue the city under your captain who is Christ. Wear his cross as your badge. If you are killed for your sins, they will be pardoned. End of quote two. Quote three. Everything that you have expressed so warmly in your name and in the name of the Croatian Catholics, we return gracefully and give you and the whole Croatian people our apostolic blessing. End of quote three. Let's talk about quote one. Today, Christians stand at the head of this country. You know, we want to rid out all this immorality. We want to get back to what this really looks like. Here's the author of quote one. Go ahead, Callie. Responsible for around 11 million deaths. That's the author of quote one. In fact, after that quote, here is what he said. As for the Jews, I'm just carrying on with the same policy which the church has adopted for 1,500 years. When it has regarded the Jews as dangerous and pushed them into ghettos because it knew what Jews were like. I don't put race above religion, but I do see the danger in the representatives of this race for the church and state. Hear this. And perhaps I am doing Christianity a great service. End quote. The second quote comes from this person. That would be Pope Urban II as he commissioned the first crusade. We don't know how many people actually died. Estimations around one million. But what I want to hear about that quote is at the end of that quote literally says, if you are killed, your sins will be pardoned. That came from a pope and that's nowhere in here. Quote three comes from this person. That's Pope Pius XII, around 400,000 killed in Croatia. What that quote is about is him giving blessing to Ante Pavlek, who is actually responsible for assassinating the leader of Croatia and then responsible for overseeing Croatia during World War II. Slaughtered 400,000 people, raised cities. One city, in fact, he pretty much had everybody hacked to death. How we know the extremes of his barbaricness? The SS Germans of the Nazis thought it was so bad, they documented it. And the Pope gives him his blessing. That's the start of the message today. Let's pray. Bow with me. Delaying Father God, we're just so glad we can gather here this morning. God, as we handle a topic that has, you know what, honestly, some feelings behind it. May we do so in light of your word and the Spirit. God, may the Holy Spirit guide this conversation. May your will be done. And God, may we remember that we serve Jesus first. Pray all this in your name. Amen. So some of you might be sitting in here saying, all right, what is even nationalism? There's actually a definition for nationalism. Every encyclopedia and dictionary defines it this way. An ideology based on the premise that the individual's loyalty and devotion to the nation state surpass other individual or group interests. That's the definition of nationalism. That's the definition, and you totally see that in the first quote I read, which was Hitler's. The second thing we need to define is what is Christian nationalism? 
Christian nationalism, there's actually not a definition for that you're going to find in the dictionary, but here's the best working definition of Christian nationalism. is a cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. Christian nationalism contends that America has been and should always be distinctively Christian from top to bottom in its self-identity, interpretations of its own history, sacred symbols, cherished values, and public policies, and it aims to keep it that way. I'm going to spoil the sermon already. The question that was asked, Christian nationalism, how Christian is it? Here's your answer, and here's what we're going to really dive in today. Christian nationalism is a perversion of the gospel. That is plain and simple what it is. Now, before anybody starts like picking up a rock and throwing it at me, you're talking to a pastor that loves the country we live in, love the freedom. That's not nationalism. In fact, as we look at this topic, Jesus encountered a similar topic to nationalism. In the Gospels, here's what we have. Coming from Luke, says this, Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something of which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples along with the supporters of Herod to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You are impartial and don't play favorites. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said, why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture is the title is stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and they went away. Now, let me help us understand what's going on here. There's three groups of people that are encountering Jesus during this moment. Pharisees, Sadducees, who are very much teachers of the law, all right, know the law, know what the Jewish faith looks like, and then Herodians. You might not have heard of the Herodians before. The group of Herodians would have been Jews, but they would have followed the line of Herod and believed in Herod, and so therefore actually valued Roman rule. Because right now, the Jewish state is under Roman occupation, and the Herodians would have been okay with that. So as Jesus is encountered, here's what they're doing. The Pharisees are like, yes, we got him. He says pay taxes. He's losing his fan base. Because let's be real. Who wants to hear from the teacher, hey, pay your taxes? This crowd would not have wanted it. And if he says don't pay your taxes to Caesar... The Herodians were going to go to Herod and say, hey, this guy's telling us to break the law. He needs to die because Rome will step in. But what Jesus does as the master teacher is utterly brilliant. He looks at them. And here's what he says. Let's look at that text one more time. But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? And then he asked them, here, show me the coin for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Don't miss the classic burn from Jesus, all right? That's what this is. 
He doesn't have the coin on him. He looks at him and says, hey, show me a coin. And one of the Pharisees probably had to be like, oh, yeah, here you go. Got this this morning from selling birds at temple. You know, whatever. And he takes it. And he says, what's on this? Well, that's Caesar. And then what's better about that coin, we know this, that coin in the first century, on the back of that coin would have been, this is Tiberius, son of Augustus the divine, meaning Caesar is God. So you got a teacher of the law pretty much carrying an idol in his pocket walking around. And Jesus calls it out, you hypocrites. And then, I can only imagine, this is not really in the text, all right? This is Chase's interpretation. Jesus nonchalantly is like, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And what he means by that is give the money to Caesar. Give God what he's due. It's worship. Where's your heart? All three of these groups thought they had Jesus cornered. Yeah, this is over. And Jesus makes fools out of them. So much so, after this text, the Herodians don't cross Jesus' path again. The Pharisees obviously didn't learn their lesson. Now, why do I say this? Well, from the Pharisees' perspective, they would be Christian nationalistic or Jewish nationalistic at this time. We're looking for a king to overthrow Rome, to prop up. That's what we want. We want a a strong Jewish nation, Jewish faith. The Herodians would have been pure nationalists. We value Rome. We value the emperor. That's where our allegiance lies. Now, when we talk about Christian nationalism today, you might make an argument. We could attempt to make an argument that, well, Chase, all right, yeah, we know. Nationalism's bad. We've seen that in history. Agreed, all right? We can agree across the table on that. But what's so bad about just adding some Christian things to nationalism? Because then it makes it okay, right? Can't we love Christ and be nationalist? And my response to you would be this. Church, adding Christian morals to nationalism is merely covering a toxic political ideology with a fig leaf. That's what it's doing. Some questions that might come up later. You might look and look at me or look at any of the staff or look at anybody else and say, hey, our country, though, founded. It's a Christian nation. Now remember, I told you to hear me out. Here's the point I want to make this morning. The United States was not organized as a Christian nation. Let me tell you something. I'm a, st- I'm a scholar of history. I love history. United States Constitution ratified in 1788. Not one reference to God, not one reference to Jesus, and not one subtext of, hey, this comes from Mark 12. This comes from Luke 9. If you want to go before that, the Articles of Confederation, which governed our country before the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. Not one reference to God, not one reference to Jesus. I'm not saying founding fathers didn't have Christian values. I'm not saying there wasn't Christian men and women. What I'm saying is we were not organized as a Christian nation, so be careful when you fight with that argument. More clearly, we see this in one of the first treaties ratified by the U.S., this comes from the Treaty of Tripoli. So, yes, for whoever wrote this question, thank you for all the study and work I've done the last three weeks. <laughs> this is Article 11 of the Treaty of Tripoli. As the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as 
it has its, in itself no character or enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslimen, which Muslims. And as the said states never entered into any war or act of hostility against any Mohammedan nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between these two countries. So this is the Treaty of Tripoli, which at this point, Tripoli would have been Libya. This has been ratified in 1797. This would have opened up trade lines in the Mediterranean because there's barbar uh, barber pirates that were attacking uh, ships. That's why this happened. This was ratified on the United States Senate floor. Ready? Without debate and with not one nay vote. Oversaw by Thomas Jefferson. In the room is future President Andrew Jackson and many founding fathers. We're not organized that way. No debate, unanimous to vote. Now, why do I go into this detail? Why do I go into this detail? Because church, we have to be knowledgeable. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say, hey, here, take all of this and use it. No, read it. Study it. We have to be knowledgeable so we're not led astray. It's the same thing Jason, myself, or Paul tell you every Sunday morning. Guys, if you don't think what we're saying from Scripture is here, open it up. And here's why this is so important. One of my favorite quotes. Nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance or conscientious stupidity. So as we look at this, and as we keep looking at what Christian nationalism is, what's happened in our nation in the last couple years, and this is not something new. This has been going on since the beginning of time. We've seen it post-Civil War. We've seen it during the Civil Rights era. We've seen it during the Cold War. We've seen this spark up many times. Is then all of a sudden it turns into a culture war. And then we have people start saying, well, hey, we got to protect the Christian state. We got to protect our religion. We got to protect our beliefs. We got to do this. You might look at me and be in all sincerity say, Chase, we got to protect. They want to take under God out of the pledge. Now, let me tell you something. As an American, as a pastor that stands for the pledge, I'm going to tell you something. That under God was added in 1954, it wasn't in the original. In fact, the original was written by Francis Bellamy who was a pastor, but outside of that, he would have identified and been labeled as a democratic socialist. He wrote the pledge. Francis Bellamy. So when I hear those arguments and I hear, hey, we gotta, we gotta protect this. Understand this, church. Understand this. This book, our faith, has survived the fall of the Roman Empire, has survived the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the plague, the great British expansion, I promise you, whatever happens with our nation, it will survive it. Why? Because God is greatest. God is number one. So when we talk about truth, having knowledge, Another quote that you might like is this. Augustine says it this way. The truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. Let it loose. It'll offend itself. So maybe a practical application point for this message today. What are you reading? 
What are we reading? What are we studying? What are we looking at? Because honestly, maybe the best thing we need to do, and I don't care what side of the argument you're on, is turn off the, turn off the news. Turn off the talking heads. Because I, I mean this sincerely. When we start regurgitating other people's opinions and beliefs, where is our God-given discernment in that? I promise you, everyone in this room, including me, we're smart enough. Whether what anybody has ever told you, you are smart enough. You've been made in the image of God. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not smart enough to be able to form an opinion on this. And the reason nationalism is so dangerous is right here. At its core, nationalism divides and rallies against a perceived enemy. That's what nationalism does. We saw it in World War II. We've seen it during the civil rights era. We've seen it so many times. We know better. We know better. And for us as Christians, you can't make disciples of people you demonize publicly and labels of, label as enemies of the faith or the state. That's Andy Stanley. You can't make disciples of people you demonize publicly and label as enemies of the faith or the state. So let's stop doing that. There is neither, neither political party has claim on our faith. No nation has claim on our faith. It stands alone, and it stands as a beacon of light for hope for everyone. Because we got to remember the core of Jesus. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And so church, your responsibility, our job, listen to me on this, it's not to attempt to legislate morality. Our job is to share the gospel. That's our job. Now, maybe you walked in here this morning and you're like, well, Chase, but I, I love our country and I would love to see our country be, be more Christ-like. Okay, I'm not going to argue with that. What I'm going to argue with is the tools. God gave us the tool. Our story, the gospel. Our job is to share it. And maybe the reason we're in the state we're in right now and we have these struggles is because let's be honest, let's, let's be real. The church has failed at its mission. The church has always been responsible for carrying out the gospel. That is no one else's responsibility but ours. So if we have a problem with our country not reflecting the values we might hold, well, let me ask you a question. How many people different than you have you talked to? How many people different than myself have I invested in, built relationships with? This will be the most political sermon we ever preach from the stage. We, Jason, myself, we try to stay away from this. But let me say this. For those of you that might identify as Republican in here, how many Democrats are close in your circle and you value their opinion? Democrats in here, how many of you do you? You value the opinion of the, somebody that says, I'm GOP, and you listen to them. And you share over conversation. This breakdown comes because we've forgotten a couple things. We've forgotten what it means to be neighborly, which, by the way... Second greatest commandment. 
And we've forgotten common decency. The mission of the gospel and the mission of Great Oaks stands boldly against Christian nationalism. The mission of Great Oaks is connecting everyone to Jesus' community and purpose. Everyone. So we will not alienate anyone when they walk in these doors. Now, why am I so passionate about this? Well, first off, when we label something with the word Christian, I'm already going to look at that really harshly. Because you're saying it's a standard bearer of Christ. I have a love for the gospel, but I hope you guys know that as, a, as one of your pastors. I hope you know that. Let me go to my second one. The reason I'm so passionate about this, I mentioned earlier, I am blessed to come from a family that has long heritage of serving in the military. I have a great-grandfather who lost a lung in France in World War I, then trained boys to go over in World War II. I have a great-aunt that served as lieutenant commander of the United States Navy during World War II, watched the love of her life take a wounded plane off the edge of a flight carrier deck into the ocean, never to be seen of again. I have a great uncle that served in the Pacific Theater during World War II. I have a grandfather who I just buried a month and a half ago, served many years in military service. Best Christian man I knew. So why am I passionate about this? Because I was fortunate. They all came home. And I got to talk to them and ask questions. Why do we do this? Why do we fight? Why do we put on this uniform and do this? And that's what, here's the answers I get, even from being a pastor in military communities. The number one that everybody always usually hears is freedom. Then it's because we're fighting against totalitarianism. An oppressed people, we're fighting for them. Or most commonly, we're fighting for the man or woman standing next to me. That's why they do that. It's not because we are suited up with the cross of Jesus. Saying, hey, we're going to make the world Christian. This is the way we're doing it. Because that's not the way of Jesus. So, what is a healthy position to have with this? Let me tell you something. Guys, patriotism's okay. Patriotism is a healthy relationship with the nation. It's a healthy sentiment. I love our country. I love the men and women that put on the uniform to protect our freedoms because I still believe that with those freedoms, we can present the gospel. That's okay. But what's not okay is when we say things like this country is the greatest than anyone else and will always be, and I will stand for that first. First is this, you've forgotten what God is about. And church, when we focus so much on earthly kingdoms, let me tell you what we lose sight of, the heavenly kingdom. Because our citizenship is not here, it is in heaven, that's Philippians 4. That's where our citizenship lies. So, how Christian is Christian nationalism? It's not it's a perversion of the gospel. That's where it stands. You want to love our country? I do too, by all means. You like the pledge? I do too. It's aspirational. Liberty and justice for all. Love it. That's fine. But please be careful. There's a line. And when we start demeaning other people groups, other beliefs, that's a problem. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the day. As we talk about this hard topic, we ask that we just remember that it's all about the gospel. It's all about your son. And may we be image bearers with his message of loving you first, loving our neighbor second, and yes, 
be stewards of where we have been put. But that does never outrank who you are. We pray this all in your name. Amen. All right, let's go to questions. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to sit on the end, all right? <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> hey, that's my seat. Oh, I was kidding, but okay. Uh, Jason does what he wants. You leave him alone. I don't really want to be higher. <laughs> like it's easier to hit. So, that, you know, Chase, I feel like that could have been a really short message. You could have said, is it? And he could have said, no. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you want it next time? I, By all means. I mean, I just delivered it. There you go. All right. So we have a couple questions that come in. Again, thank you for participating and using that code. And these are your questions. So is there a specific example of what Christian nationalism looks like? I'll let you take that when you do the research. <laughs> Um, you know what, I'm going to speak very generic because from our stage, we don't demean uh, any public figure, anybody ever by name. Um, so anytime you are watching, and I say talking heads, I mean anybody you see on TV. When you hear the words, I'm a Christian, I'm also a nationalist, that's where you see it. But then you also see it with like, hey, because I'm a Christian nationalist, we need to not love other people. Yes, we don't make policy. And yes, there's plenty of people out there that can make a better policy than I can on how to handle refugees. But I know my job is to show the love of Christ. Yeah, there's a healthy way of legislating that and doing that. I leave that to people more trained than me. But when someone stands on a platform and says, no, since I'm a Christian, then you're, that's not the gospel. And so that would be an example when you hear talking heads say things like that. You got to be careful. Yeah. So you're really saying anytime we elevate something above love, or we elevate nation above Jesus. Anytime we put anything above Jesus in our lives, yep. understand that that's idolatry for all of us. Even when I put the Big Mac over God because I crave McDonald's, that's idolatry. That's what it is. It's also gross. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for using my example and destroying it. All right, thanks. All right, yeah. Let me take, and I think the other piece of this where it gets, you talked in the definition, it's where we combine American civics and Christianity together. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that so happens is because of our political system a lot of times, mm -hmm. we, we make choices. And so then what we do is we lump in a political way, we say, well, Jesus, of course, would be a Democrat, or Jesus, of course, would be a Republican. But then we ignore some things that are clearly anti-biblical in one party or the other. And we say, of course, this would be the biblical platform because it aligns with the party that I like the most. And then we start you basically saying that's what Jesus is for. So, for example, like, as I read the Old Testament, it says, welcome the foreigners in your midst. Yeah. But we often, as Christians, will come and say, well, of course, we need to, like, keep all the foreigners out, which mm -hmm. I struggle with sometimes. Yeah. So it's reading the entire Bible. And the other thing I would say is the stats would tell you the more you read God's word, the more you walk away from Christian nationalism. And, you know, with that, Paul, I mean, you guys know my heart on this. Mm -hmm. Guys, the more you read everything, everything should be read in context. Scripture. Guys, the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Everything should be read in context. Read the whole thing. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah. They're going to hate us. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> cool. All right. We have one other question that's come in. If you have anything else you want to ask, send them through. Um, we have a couple minutes. So uh, as we live out the Great Commission, how do the channels 
of government fit into our tool belt. Mm. That's good. Um, I want to make, be careful because we don't want to, we want to make sure we don't say, hey, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't serve in politics or in public service. That is not what we're saying. Mm -hmm. There is great Christian men and women serving um, in our local, state, and federal. And guys, we should be praying for them. Mm -hmm. And not only praying for them, but praying for all of our leaders. Mm -hmm. So where does this fit? We are a support. I'd hope that the church is looked at by the government and by our, our nation as the organization that is best at caring for people. When somebody's in need, that, that's what we do. Showing love of Christ. So I think that's where it plays in. But no, make sure you don't mishear us. Yeah, if you're serving in those, those sectors or public service, awesome. We're glad you are and we're praying for you. And for those of you who don't feel called to serve in politics or in government or in the judicial system in those ways, I think we do still, to some ways, we vote our conscience, right? We need to vote for the things we feel right voting for, but that doesn't mean I have to demonize the other side. No, that's true. And I think that's the biggest thing. When you get into this nationalism, because its goal is to divide, yeah. it stops conversation. Mm -hmm. So are, can we sit down at a table and have a conversation with somebody who votes differently than us? who believes differently about any given topic than us, and can we learn something? Can we develop empathy to hear and understand where they're coming from more? Um, it's not saying don't vote, your, don't vote for what you believe is right. We probably agree on most of those things, but it, does voting for what I believe is right mean I demonize somebody else? And that, that's when I think we get into really messy areas. The other thing I would add to this, in this, this where this gets off a little bit, why, why this is a perversion of the gospel, is because oftentimes it's not necessarily like directly opposed to the gospel, right? There's like, it's just a little bit off. And so like one of the things in Jeremiah 29, it talks about that we should want the, the place that we live to prosper. As they're exiles, in a, as the Jews are exiles in a, in a land that is not following the ways of God, we should want our, our community to prosper. And so the same thing happens. So, so we should want laws and policies that help our community to prosper, but that gets a little hard because what ends up happening is we're legislating change in people's hearts when the gospel says, no, we change inside, right? Like it comes from the inside, not the outside. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's where the policy piece gets a little bit complicated sometimes because it's, it's messy. Not to give Dave credit, but yes, I totally could have walked up and said, guys, this is all about keeping priorities straight. As long as God stays first and we'll, us loving our neighbor is second, everything else falls underneath. That's okay. Yeah. Dave, anything else? There's one other one here. Do you believe policy and political decisions encourage or prevent people from coming to Christ? If so, what is the role of Christians in America and the church in America in creating policies that encourage Christ as the answer in people's lives? Go ahead. All right. Um, this is... This sermon. Yeah. Um, I don't depend on anybody but the church to, to be the, the, the messenger of the gospel. God's creation, that is divine inspiration, and yes, that as well. But when we say, when we ask, when we talk about that kind of stuff, we got to be careful um, because there are times that people will stop coming to church or not want to be involved in church because what their witness is, is another Christian that has a certain belief. Um, what's the famous quote by Gandhi? I would be a Christian if it wasn't for all the Christians I've met. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, so we got to be careful. Every time we walk, no matter what we're doing in society, we're a witness for Christ first. And so like when I rank my life, yeah, I'm a believer first. And yeah, I'm a husband second. A 
pastor is down here a little bit. My church is a little bit down here. If my family's not okay, then my church doesn't matter at that moment. We have to remember that. It's, it's about prioritizing still. But yeah, that's good. Can you read it one more time? Yep. Yeah. Uh, no, I lost it. One second. Um, do you believe policy and political decisions encourage or prevent people from coming to Christ? If so, what is the role of the Christians in America and the church in America in creating policies encourage Christ as the answer in people's lives? I think the first part of that question, I, I'm not sure how much policy really influences people for Jesus. Relationships do. Yep. And so, again, I'm going to come back to that. And you guys are like, this guy talks, says the same thing every week. <laughs> yeah, I do. But it's gold. Go talk yeah. to people. <laughs> mm-hmm. go, talk, yeah. go talk to mm-hmm. somebody who believes differently than yeah. you do, lives differently than you do, looks differently than you do. Build those relationships. That's where the gospel gets shared. We earn the credibility. We earn the trust to share the gospel when we build those relationships. It's not about policy. When I reheard the second part of that question, uh, I think one thing we should put in there, I mentioned the sermon some of us have this heart be like, yeah, because maybe we had more Christian policies, people would see that and see the love of Christ in there. Right. Guys, the point is, the great thing about our nation, because there's some great things about our nation, populous. We're a republic. So if the church did its job and like we were actually witnessing to people, guys, maybe you'd see that change that way. And that's, that's the organic way it should be changing. We change lives, not policy. Let me add one more thing, yeah. if I can, no, on that, no, on that question. So, like, I think there's a, this movement, like, well, if we create more freedom for Christians to be Christians in this country, then more, we'd have more Christians. But two things that I would argue, mm-hmm. one is oftentimes what ends up happening then is you end up talking to just general America, Americans and people that don't really have a relationship with Jesus, and they'll say, are you a Christian? And they'll say, well, I live in America. So their answer is, because I'm an American, I'm a Christian, mm-hmm. versus I have a relationship with Christ. The other thing, and I think the stats are still true, the fastest growing church in the, in the world right now is in China. It is. Which is a closed country to the gospel. Yeah. They have no freedoms. In fact, in fact, if you're a Christian in China, basically you can be killed. And that's the fastest growing church. Mm-hmm. So sometimes policies actually against Christianity lead to more growth. That's kind of crazy. And, you know, speaking of China, so having served in China, when I was there, they do have churches, but they're only allowed in the government if the government tells you you have to take out certain passages of Scripture. So you have to take out every Scripture that talks about toppling a government. Because, yes, China is communist, but at, at its core, it is nationalistic. So if you're okay to be a church, as long as you're willing to you know, cut out some Scripture. And I'm pretty sure we know how God feels about that. So, yeah. I think that's all the questions. We should probably let them go before right, Tara kills us. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, guys, uh, I want to thank everybody for being here today. If this was your first week, I think the question next week might be a little softer. All right, so join us again next week. We hope to see you. Have a great week, everybody.